This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Aries are curious and enthusiastic. Pisces are generous and emotional. You might read this in a horoscope. Would these claims be scientific? Is astrology a science? If not, what distinguishes it from real science? The 20th century Viennese-born philosopher Karl Popper gave an answer. But it's not one that convinces Massimo Pellucci. He has an alternative proposal for demarcating science from pseudoscience. Massimo Pellucci, welcome to Frosty Bites. It's a pleasure to be here. The topic we're going to focus on is the demarcation problem. What is that? That's a term that was coined by Karl Popper at the beginning of the 20th century, and it indicates the question of what exactly separates science from non-science in general, and more specifically science from pseudoscience. So what criterion did Popper used to make that demarcation between science and pseudoscience? Well, he famously thought that he had solved the problem very nicely and very clearly. So he introduced what he called the criterion of falsification. If a theory or a hypothesis or a statement is falsifiable, meaning that there is at least in principle a way to empirically tell whether the statement in question is false or not, then it is scientific. If it is not falsifiable, there is no way even in principle to actually show that it is false if it is false, then it's not science. Interestingly, his examples were telling because he thought that the general theory of relativity in physics is a clear example of science, and we all agree with that. And he came up with that one because he wrote his first papers on falsificationism just shortly after the famous 1919 total eclipse of the sun that confirmed spectacularly Einstein's theory of relativity. So he thought this is a great case of science because it could have gone the other way and the theory would have been spectacularly falsified and then scientists would have had to say, well, sorry, this doesn't work. He contrasted that with psychoanalysis and Marxist theories of history, which in his mind were not scientific for the simple reason that there is no way in principle that they can be falsified. They are compatible with any new kind of information. I can bring you as a psychoanalyst, according to Popper, a new case, and if it doesn't seem to fit your story, you can come up with a modification of that story so that the case will actually fit. So there is no way even in principle for a psychoanalyst, let's say of a Freudian tradition, to say, oh yeah, that case clearly doesn't fit my theory and it clearly is a problem for my theory. Everything fits because you can make it fit. And so this is very neat. So if somebody has a theory that the, the moon is made of green cheese, that could actually be a scientific statement or it could be part of a scientific experiment because you send somebody to the moon and see if it is made of green cheese. That's right. And although there are skeptics even today about the fact that we haven't been to the moon, we have been to the moon. And guess what? It's not made of cheese. Right? So yes, that theory is not only falsifiable, but in fact it is false. Now that's a problem for Popper. Because if you think about it, the same applies also to things like astrology, which pretty much everybody in philosophy of science agrees that it's a pseudoscience. And the problem with astrology, however, is that it's falsifiable. So according to Popper's own criterion, it should actually qualify as a science. I'll go even worse. So-called creation science, this idea that is very popular here in the United States, that the Earth was created you know, a few thousand years ago with a big flood and that sort of stuff. 
all of those statements are perfectly falsifiable because you can go into the geological record, you can actually date things, events, and you can say, well, no, it turns out the Earth is not a few thousand years old, so the theory is falsifiable. So that's a problem for Popper because then it turns out that if you apply falsifiability, there are a number of notions that we normally consider pseudoscientific that would turn out to be, in fact, scientific. False, but scientific nonetheless. And that's a problem. That seems to indicate that that criterion doesn't work. See, I don't see a problem with that. It can be a scientific statement. It just has a very misguided hypothesis that is presumably very easy to falsify. Right. So I don't see a problem either at that level. But at another level, it turns out that there is a number of activities, creation science being one, astrology being another one, certain alternative medical practices, such as homeopathy being a third one, that philosophers in general, and scientists in fact, consider pseudoscientific. So the question is, well, how do you recover that notion then if it is independent of falsifiability? If it turns out that falsifiability doesn't really discriminate between science and pseudoscience, what possibly can make that discrimination, right? So my guess is it's likely to be more complicated than a single criterion, that Popper has gone for an easy, neat solution, and the counterexamples of the kind you mentioned seem to point towards something more complex. That's right. So what happened was that at some point in the early 80s, there was an interesting debate. This was a public debate because there was a famous trial in Arkansas about the teaching of creationism in public schools. And the creationists lost that trial. There were philosophers actually on the bench testifying about the nature of pseudoscience. And the problem was that some of these philosophers actually invoked Popper's criterion of falsification and said, well, you know, creation science is not falsifiable. And then other people outside of the courtroom, other notable philosophers, particularly Larry Lawton at the University of Pittsburgh, said, no, 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 wait a minute, this is wrong. We know that that doesn't work that way. We know that falsifiability doesn't work. So why are you telling the courts that you can use that criterion? In fact, Lawton went so far as to write a paper in the early 80s where he said, look, there just isn't going to be a simple, straightforward criterion that will be able to tell you the difference between science and pseudoscience. Pseudoscience and science are not the kind of concepts that emit of what philosophers call a small set of necessary and, and jointly sufficient conditions for definition. Therefore, forget about it. This whole idea of the demarcation project, it's in fact a dead end. The kind of concepts that Lawton was talking about was things like, if you ask me the definition of a triangle, I can tell you that that is a geometrical figure with three sides whose the internal sum of the angles is 180 degrees. That's all you need to know in order to know that that figure is in fact a triangle. It is both necessary, meaning that if it doesn't have those characteristics, it's not a triangle, and it is sufficient, meaning that it, if, if it does have those characteristics, it is a triangle. Law then said that that sort of definition isn't going to be possible for something as complicated and as fuzzy as science, pseudoscience, and so on and so forth. So he said, forget about it, abandon that project, it's a dead end. That paper, that London paper in the early 80s, was so influential that, in fact, philosophers of science, for all effective purposes, stopped working on the demarcation problem. And more importantly, and I think more problematically, they stopped working on pseudoscience and on the areas of science that are kind of borderline with pseudoscience. Then what happened was that an increasing number of people started getting really uncomfortable in the philosophy of science community with this idea that, well, wait a minute, there's this big issue out there and nobody's done anything for, you know, 20 years. So a number of people, including myself and my collaborator, Martin Baldry, had this idea of you know, asking people what they thought and maybe if we got a sufficient number of answers and interesting answers, put together a volume that would collect sort of new thoughts on the demarcation problem. This book has come out and now we have a very, very different landscape in philosophy of science, I think, about the demarcation problem. 
So just to recap, Popper thought that the criterion of falsifiability was both necessary and a sufficient condition of something's being science. The counterexample suggests that it may be a necessary condition, but it's certainly not sufficient because some things which clearly aren't science pass the falsifiability test. And the reaction then was for Loudon and others to say, well, look, the demarcation is not easily characterised because it's what's sometimes called an open concept. It doesn't have a single easily identifiable essence, let's say. That's right. Now, the counter to that position by Loudon is, of course, that in philosophy, we know that there is a number of concepts like those. They often refer to as family resemblance concepts or cluster concepts. And this comes back to Wittgenstein. You know, my favorite analogy there is his own example of definition of a game. If I ask you how to define what a game is, you might start giving me a list of characteristics, like it's done for fun, it has rules, there's a winner and loser, and so on and so forth. But as it turns out, none of this is necessary nor sufficient to characterize a game, because there are games where there are no winner or losers. There are other things that have rules, other activities that have rules, or they're done for fun, but they're not games, and so on and so forth. And Wittgenstein famously says, well, so what does that mean? That we don't know what a game is? Of course we do. But the way we learn what a game is, is by essentially forming what in science is known as forming a target image. So you just go around and you say, well, that is a game, that's a game, that's a game. That's not a game. That's not a game. That's not a game. And then there is going to be those kind of situations where you say, that one, I don't know. I'm not sure. It has some characteristics of a game, but maybe not enough to actually feel fully qualify, right? And then also within games, even within things that clearly qualify as games, there may be subcategories that are very interesting. For instance, board games are one kind of things, but sports are a completely different kind of things. I mean, we all think of them as sort of in the same general family, but of course they are, in fact, distinct enough that you would never confuse them. So maybe maybe the same goes for science, pseudoscience, and similar kinds of activities. That is, these are family resemblance concepts where nobody has any problem identifying, let's say, chemistry or evolutionary biology or fundamental physics as sciences, Nobody has a problem identifying astrology and creation science as pseudosciences. But then there are those other situations in between or that present characteristics that make you think. Like, for instance, research on ESP, parapsychology. Well, there's been some interesting research that's been done in that area, and yet it has never become you know, mainstream science. Most scientists are skeptical about the evidence has been accumulated, even though some of that evidence comes out of controlled experiments done under laboratory conditions. So what's the status of that? I would still qualify parapsychology as essentially a pseudoscience, or at least a borderline pseudoscience. But then you can go on the other side of these sort of fuzzy line and talk about things like evolutionary psychology. Now, evolutionary psychology is normally accepted as a science. It's got its own journals. It's supposed to be a branch of evolutionary biology. It uses perfectly understandable and perfectly acceptable general principles from evolutionary biology, such as the idea of natural selection, and so on and so forth. And yet, a lot, not all, but a lot of the literature comes out of evolutionary psychology is really fairly characterized as, you know, a number of interesting stories that may or may not be true, but they're very difficult, if not impossible, to actually test. So what's the status of that? Uh, is it really a science? Is it really a pseudoscience? What, what's going on there? Just to focus on the evolutionary psychology for a moment, you've fallen back on the Popperian criterion of falsifiability as the most important feature there. Couldn't an evolutionary psychologist say, well, you're stuck in the, the Popperian way of thinking about science, and actually there are other things that matter in science as well? 
Right, that would be correct. I don't think that we need to raise the bar to the level of falsifiability because in fact, if that's the case, then even some theories in fundamental physics, for instance, at the moment would fail the falsifiability criterion. But what I think it's fair to say is, well, yes, but is there a way to actually test empirically to sort of gain some kind of empirical foothold on the idea that you are proposing? I mean, the falsifiability test was supposed to be sharp. It was supposed to be the result of a crucial experiment. The famous eclipse of the sun considered the crucial test for the general theory of relativity. Well, according to Popper, that was an example of a crucial experiment, either yes or no. Turns out, very few experiments, if any, are actually of that kind, yes or no, very clear cut. This is because of something called the Duhem problem. Pierre Duhem was a physicist at the beginning of the 20th century who was actually also very much interested in the history and philosophy of science. And he pointed out, whenever you set up an experiment, you're not just testing the specific hypothesis, let's say the idea of general relativity. You know, the famous eclipse of the sun was based on the idea that general relativity predicts that large gravitational masses such as the sun would bend light. So if that's true, then the astronomers ought to be able to see a star coming out from behind the sun slightly before it's actually predicted if light were going in a straight line, right? And it turns out that's exactly what happened. But the problem is that even that hypothesis, it's not just based on the theory of general relativity, it's also based on a number of ancillary hypotheses, right? It also assumes that the telescopes work correctly and the photographic equipment works correctly. It's also based on theories of optics, which allow you to make that prediction, you know, what is the angle and when is the star supposed to be coming out. And if the test fails, it may be that that's because the general theory of relativity is wrong, or it may be because one of the other ancillary hypotheses actually went wrong, which is why, if you look at the history of science, a number of times scientists have wisely kept certain hypotheses alive, even if, if they had failed or not done particularly well in initial tests. One of the best examples is the Copernican theory of the structure of the solar system, right? So Copernicus was among the first one who said, well, look, it's not the Earth at the center, it's the sun, and the planets go around. But it turns out that if you accept that theory and you actually start making predictions about the positions of the planets in the sky, you're not gonna do much better than the rival, the Ptolemaic theory, which was based on this idea of the existence of epicycles, these invisible structures that hold the planets together. Technically, the Copernican theory actually wasn't doing any better and therefore, scientists should have you know, looked at it and said, well, you know, sorry, nice try. But it turns out that it, the theory was kept alive for a number of decades until Kepler figured out what was wrong with, with the picture, that the orbits of the planets are not circular. They are actually elliptical. And once you make that jump, then all of a sudden things start clicking and the position of the planets turned out to be very accurately predicted by the theory. So there's a number of good examples in science where an immediate problem encountered by the theory does not necessarily lead to the rejection of the theory. But there has to be a way, at least in principle, over time to keep looking at the connection between the theory and the empirical evidence. Where does that leave us? One thing you could do would be to look for the paradigm examples of science these marginal cases that you've described and then we make a decision about whether it's science or not and that then becomes a kind of linguistic thing how you use the word science is that where we're left with just a choice about what we call stuff 
Yeah, so some people actually would argue that. I know some of my colleagues in the sciences would say, well, look, there's, there's nothing different between science and just everyday activities where you look at evidence and you reason on evidence, right? If you're doing plumbing, for instance, you have something wrong with your bathroom, then uh, essentially you're doing science. Formulating a hypothesis about what might have gone wrong with the plumbing system, and then you're doing experiment in sort of terms to see, figure out if you fix it or not. But I think that that underestimates the fact that science has become a highly structured, highly complex social activity of a particular kind that very few people have actually trouble telling from plumbing, for instance. So what are other ways of going about the demarcation problem in a, in a modern fashion? One that I propose is this. I think that we could think of the science, pseudoscience issue as a landscape, specifically a three-dimensional landscape, at least three-dimensional landscape. On one axis, you could have the degree of theoretical sophistication of the structure of the theory where you get very simple statements on one end, like in the case of creation science. Oh, God created the world 6,000 years ago. That's it. Two, at the opposite extreme, you have you know, the standard model in physics, arguably the most successful scientific theory ever produced. It's incredibly complex, presented in mathematical fashion. You know, it's, it's very difficult to understand. Only a few people in the world actually do understand it. So that's one axis could be the theoretical sophistication. A second axis could be the empirical content of those ideas. Creation science is very little empirical content because once you actually start going out there and testing some of the basic statements that creationists make, uh, you come up empty-ended. There's very, very good reasons to believe that the Earth is not a few thousand years old. There's very good reason to believe that the Grand Canyon was not created in a few hours and so on and so forth. So the empirical content of that theory is very small, if not completely zero. At the opposite extreme, again, you, you take things like the best example of them all is quantum mechanics where the empirical content is absurdly sophisticated. I mean, you know, you can use quantum mechanics to make predictions that are many, many, many decimal points of precision in empirical predictions, and then it's turned out you do the experiments, and sure enough, you get it exactly right. And then there is the third axis. The third axis, I think, is the most fascinating. I would say that that's essentially time. Things change over time, and science itself hasn't been the same throughout its history. So some notions that were scientific at one point, like phrenology, for instance, this idea that the structure of your skull and the bumps on your head are going to tell you something about the character of the person and the behavioral tendencies of that person. Well, when it came out, it was a reasonable idea. Well, why not? If, we, if you can establish on the basis of even just correlational evidence that there is, in fact, a relationship between gross brain anatomy and behavior, well, I don't see why that's, that's a particularly insane idea. Turns out it's wrong. And what makes it into a pseudoscience? Well, it's not that it's wrong, because plenty of scientific theories, even good scientific theories, turn out to be wrong. I mean, Newtonian mechanics is wrong. But just because Newtonian mechanics is wrong, nobody in his right mind would say, well, that's pseudoscience. The difference is that once that a notion is demonstrated to be wrong, it's, it's discarded, or some other better notion comes in to replace it in science, sometimes what happens is that there's a group of people who insist on thinking that the old notion is correct. A much more recent example is cold fusion. This was the idea put forth by a couple of chemists that you could get nuclear fusion on a desktop laboratory without all these very high energy, high temperature approaches that physicists were trying. Well, there seemed to be very little theoretical reasons to believe that that was possible, but the experimental results seemed pretty interesting. And so for a while, scientists took it seriously and said, okay, well, let's take a look at this thing. 
Within about a year or so, it became clear that the initial results were not replicable. Then people started coming up with explanations for what happened in the original experiments. And these days, the scientific community seems to be pretty much convinced that it is not possible to do cold fusion, at least not under those conditions that were originally proposed. But what happened was something strange. Then, then a number of scientists kept saying that, no, 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 it can be done. It's a conspiracy. It's the rest of the world that doesn't want to believe it because, you know, that would rake havoc on, on international economy and all that sort of stuff. And so now there are international conferences on cold fusion. There's a journal of cold fusion, that sort of research and so on and so forth. But now it has become a pseudoscience because it has become a bubble completely separate from the rest of science. No serious scientist really pays attention to it. So it's not that cold fusion is pseudoscience because it's wrong. It's pseudoscience because once we know that it's wrong, people keep thinking that it isn't. That's fascinating. So the idea is that the time at which somebody says something is a factor in whether it's science or not. That's exactly right. Alchemy is another perfect example. You know, Newton spent a lot of time doing alchemy. And at the time, this was actually a reasonable thing to do. Alchemists did make a number of discoveries that then they got translated into what we call today modern chemistry. But at some point, alchemy was not progressive anymore. It wasn't giving results. Nowadays, if you think of yourself as an alchemist, now you're definitely a pseudoscientist. But two centuries ago or three centuries ago, you would have been at the cutting edge. This is a really interesting discussion. But is this just a game? Is it just a, the game of definition? That Can we find a way of characterizing the difference between science and non-science? Or are there some practical implications? Oh, I think there are very practical implications. And I'll give you a couple. On the one hand, remember, science is a big business. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on scientific research. And so there are governments and private organizations that fund research that may or may not actually qualify as good science. I mean, the, the National Institute of Health, for instance, in the United States, for a number of years has pumped tens of millions of dollars per year into research into alternative medicine, even though some of those alternative, so-called alternative practices are pretty well known at this point not to work. So now we're talking about a certain amount of money that has been, in my mind, wasted from the public purse. You also have, of course, science at a cutting edge. Let's say the kind of physics that is done by large organizations like the one that built the Large Hadron Collider. Those are very expensive pieces of machinery. There are thousands of scientists working. And it is a fair question for the public and for policymakers to say, well, is this really worth it? Is it, is it reasonable to think that we're going to get some interesting answers? Also, the label scientist comes with a large social cachet. So scientists have a lot of influence in modern society, and rightly so. If we're talking, for instance, about climate science, we're talking about scientists potentially having an influence on literally how we direct the future of the planet, right? So it does make perfect sense to ask, well, yes, but is it what you're doing really the best science that can be done, or is it really science at all, and so on and so forth. At the opposite end of the spectrum, in the area of pseudoscience, you know, I'm often asked, what's the problem with pseudoscience? I mean, if you think that, you know, homeopathy doesn't work, well, what's the big deal with that? What's the harm? Well, the harm is that in some cases, literally millions of people die. The best case is a particular type of um, skepticism about HIV AIDS. So there are some people who do not believe the scientific version of the story, which is that the HIV virus causes AIDS. The result of that is that there's people that have been refusing to get medications 
in Africa, a number of African countries have refused to distribute these drugs, even when they're given to them for free, because their leaders have adopted essentially pseudoscientific notions about HIV-AIDS. Well, the result of that is that literally millions of people have died. So we're talking about something that has very much practical influence. It's not just a, a discussion among philosophers, as interesting as I think it is from a purely epistemological perspective, but we're talking about the balance here between lives lost or saved on the one hand and billions of dollars spent or wasted on the other hand. Massimo Pliucci, thank you very much. It was a pleasure, thank you. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.